Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 148, recorded on March 8th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Char. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Let's start with news from Let's Encrypt this week. Yeah, this is a story that developed throughout the week because originally, Let's Encrypt said that due to a bug, they were going to have to revoke 3 million certificates, and they were going to do it very quickly within a couple of days. But then a couple of days went by, and they realized that they would end up revoking 1.3 million certificates that people hadn't replaced. And so now they've delayed that revocation, and they've been quite vague about it. It's interesting because they had the data to see, oh, people are, are not taking action here. This all goes back to a pretty simple bug in Boulder, which is Let's Encrypt's automated certificate management environment. I'm no Go developer, but I guess the, it's a very common bug in Go, taking a reference to a loop iterator variable. And that bug, that simple bug meant if a subscriber validated a domain name at time X and the CAA records for that domain at time X allowed Let's Encrypt's insurance, that subscriber would be able to issue a certificate containing that domain name for X plus 30 days. Even if sometime later someone installed a record on the domain name that prohibited its insurance by Let's Encrypt at a later point, if it had already been issued, it was too late, it would be considered valid. The funny thing is, the code fix was deployed in about two hours after they discovered the bug, so it really got fixed fast. It's just the issue is at that scale, you're talking about millions of certificates, and it takes a while for people to get the word and to fix it. Well, just last week, they announced that they'd issued a billion certificates total. This has really taken off for Let's Encrypt, it has done exactly what they wanted. It's made HTTPS the default across the web. And so bugs like this are quite wide-reaching now and have caused quite a bit of upset. Yeah, if you think this might impact you, I encourage you to check out our link at linuxactionnews.com slash 148. It'll be towards the very top of the show notes. I feel like we should have a special segment in the show for what's the latest Intel hardware vulnerability, because this week we've got another one. Are you feeling the Intel fatigue yet, folks? Yeah, virtually all Intel chips released in the past five years contain an unfixable flaw that would allow a sophisticated, and I underscore that word, attack to defeat a host of security measures that have been built in. Intel has issued patches to lessen the damage of the exploits and make them even harder to actually take advantage of. But a security firm named Positive Technology said the mitigations are not enough to protect a system fully. These flaws reside in that converged security and management engine, a subsystem of Intel CPUs and chipsets that's roughly like AMD's platform security processor. We'll have a link to an Ars Technica article that was done by Dan Gooden that goes into more details. It's a good write-up. So this CSME, which is often a contention point for people, implements a firmware-based trusted platform module. Lots of tools and even things like UFI BIOS firmware take advantage of this. Microsoft's BitLocker is another example. The bug stems from a failure of input and output memory management. Kind of simple on the surface, but actually exploiting that's pretty tough. I think that's the key here. And it's like with a lot of the other hardware vulnerabilities that we've seen in Intel processors. It's theoretical. Yes, it's concerning, but is anyone actually taking advantage of this? Probably not. And if so, it's extremely targeted attacks, maybe by governments or something. But I don't think this is going to be widely exploited in the wild. That's my take on it, although there is the look of this at this point. 
it's a problem from them for a, from a brand standpoint. And I think that will have impacts for a long time on their performance in the data center, especially as AMD keeps making fantastic processors. And they don't seem to be quite as impacted by these vulnerabilities. It opens up a big window of vulnerability for Intel here at a time when they need that data center sale more than ever. And it's not only AMD coming after them in the data center. Look what's happening with ARM. This week we saw Ampere announce a new 80-core, 64-bit ARM processor that is specifically targeted at the data center. And they're claiming twice the performance of x86 per watt, which does not look good for Intel long-term if this is where we're going with ARM. It's not just them. There's Marvell, too. They have a 36-core, 64-bit ARM, but that Ampere one is really fascinating. So 80 cores, 64-bit. Yep, okay, okay, that sounds real. 3 gigahertz turbo boost, and the chip only consumes, like you were saying, 210 watts of power. That is less power than a modern Xeon with a dozen cores. And we're talking real numbers here. 3 gigahertz, and we're talking 80 cores on a single chip? This is really competitive from both a performance standpoint and a power usage standpoint. And that's why this is just a super vulnerable time for Intel right now. But it's interesting that there's a story developing about AMD and their processors and a new paper released by Graz University of Technology. I think that's how you say it. AMD have denied that it is a new vulnerability. So we'll have to see how this works out over the next week or so. But it does go to show that it's not necessarily just Intel who are vulnerable here and that ARM might well come and just take over the data center. We've been saying it for a long time, but it feels like it's actually happening now. I'm skeptical still. I have to be honest with you. Watching the server environments from the early 90s to the early 2000s to where we're at now, one thing that's really held true is large industrial-grade server-side applications rarely go through major architecture rewrites. And you can have just these crazy legacy systems that get drugged 30 years past their real viability date, simply because large enterprises don't want to change. I think we'll be with x86 in some form or another, likely for nearly the rest of our natural lives. It's just there may be way more different architectures out there. There may be more popular architectures out there. But x86 will be here forever, as uh, all of my friends out there that are still working on System 390s are probably nodding their heads to right now. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Well, let's transition to talking a little Debian. We have some updates for the Debian project leader in 2020. Yeah, Sam Hartman has written quite a lengthy post explaining why he doesn't want to stand again for the role of Debian project lead. He writes, though, I hope to be DPL again some year, but 2020 is the wrong year for me and for the project, so I will not nominate myself this year, but hope to do so some future year. It sounds like he's pretty disappointed with how things have gone over the last year. He had some quite grand ambitions, and they just haven't really panned out. He kind of is diplomatic about that and says that there's been some successes, but I think some of the fundamental things that he wanted to deal with haven't been dealt with. He has dragged up the System D debate again, or at least dragged it to the surface. It sounds like it was clearly bubbling under the surface. And that has not been resolved. He tried to have this general resolution and, and get it solved, but that just didn't work out. And there's also the conflict resolution aspect of that. The system D debate within Debian several years ago really did bring out quite a lot of unpleasantness. And 
again it has done this time. And I think Sam wanted to implement some processes to deal with this conflict and have conflict resolution. And that doesn't seem to have worked out either. Yeah, after this last year, I could completely understand why Sam wants to check out for a bit. Let somebody with a different set of tools and skill sets step in, maybe fix some of this, set up whatever needs to be set up to resolve issues, get things on the straight and narrow, and then when their work's done, hand it off to somebody else who can run a healthy project. I think it's really unfortunate that this has continued to evolve now for years, and I think it's going to impact the distribution. And it, I hope, perhaps, with some leadership change, somebody else can step in that maybe can resolve things, if it is even at all possible. Which, reading through Sam's post here, makes me think that maybe it's not. Yeah. I, I, I remember talking about this before and thinking, oh, well, Debian has been going for such a long time now, and it'll be fine. But I'm, I'm starting to doubt that. Yep, same. I had that same conclusion when I started reading through all of this for the show. And there's there seems to be different factions setting up that are even like establishing their own news outlets to report Debian news as they see it. It's becoming partisan. And um, I really think it's going to damage the project. It is in a precarious situation right now. And it, it just seems like some sort of fork is going to have to happen or some kind of really large understanding at a group level will have to be achieved. Well, we've already seen the fork, haven't we, with DevOne. That was to make it completely system D free. And that didn't solve it. I thought that had solved it. I thought that we'd kind of split the community there into those who were behind systemd and those who weren't, but that didn't work. And I think that there's also a broader political change that's happened, a social change that has happened in the last five or 10 years, which has polarized the world, really. Yeah, it's polarized the discourse in the mailing list. The mailing list conversations are heated. I agree that there is a there is a new um, vitriol and velocity to the words that people use in the mailing list that just wasn't really present. There was disagreements for sure, even even some pretty passionate ones. But this is at a whole new level now. It, it, it's just really, it seems unmanageable. I hope that you're right and someone does step up and solve all of this because with the right communication, it may be possible and with the right leadership. And I think that's our only hope here. Someone comes along and just sorts it out. I just wouldn't envy the person who has to do that. And just as a quick aside, while we're talking about System D, System D Home D has officially been added. We covered that pretty extensively in Linux Unplugged recently, but it's a way to do built-in encryption and add portability to Linux home directories. Yeah, and that comes with version 245 of System D, which has now been released, coming to a distro near you soon. And it's probably worth mentioning, don't worry, it's entirely optional and off by default. So even if your distro does ship that version of System D, it doesn't mean it's using HomeD. For now. IX Systems caught our attention this week when they announced that FreeNAS and TrueNAS are becoming one. With version 12 coming later on this year, there'll be TrueNAS Core and TrueNAS Enterprise. And they say that that will be one image that you can install. And then if you have a license key, then you can unlock the enterprise features. But otherwise, you can just use the completely open source version, TrueNAS Core. And adopting some language that the broader industry outside of our bubble is a little more familiar with. TrueNAS Core provides all of the same unrestricted functionality as FreeNAS that is already today. It, it, it's essentially full FreeNAS, just with a new name. 
Um, you can even, if you want, in the UI, change an option so that way you still see the free NAS logo. And then you get what they consider more enterprise features when you license. And that's things to do with fiber channel, some certain high availability features, and uh, other encryption features outside the standard CFS set. See, I think it's a smart move more from a developer resources standpoint. Just unifying their work on one product, not taking free NAS, and then setting a bunch of dedicated work to make it true NAS, just one product with the base being free NAS. I... I almost wonder if FreeNAS isn't the stronger brand overall, but obviously they know better and decided TrueNAS is the route to go. Well, that's for commercial reasons, because free sounds like it's no cost and therefore terrible in the enterprise. That That's why we have open source, right? Because of the whole free software thing not appealing to the money men back in the uh, late 90s. Right, whereas true NAS sounds like the one true NAS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one can argue with that. When this does ship, and they just say right now, latter half of this year, I, I'm going to give it a go. And what I'm going to be looking for is how this line is handled between TrueNAS Core and TrueNAS Enterprise. Is it all truly open source bits just sitting there on the disk that I could get access to? Is there closed source bits that get downloaded and activated? Is there closed source that ships on the ISO but just isn't enabled by default and only open source is enabled by default? These are the types of questions I have about the implementation. Plus, as a long-time on-and-off free NAS user, I'm just kind of curious to see where they take it. Surely you just delete it and install Arch. <laughs> well, first Fedora, then Arch, and then maybe Ubuntu in the future. <laughs> Yeah, then ultimately Ubuntu LTS, because that makes the most sense. <laughs> yeah. You know I love a good cryptocurrency story, and Facebook's Libra is back in the news this week. Is this a good one, though? In fact, if anything, it kind of seems like the market's cooling, and they're altering their plans pretty significantly. You remember that Libra was their cryptocurrency project that was announced, like, uh, last June? It's been quite a while. Well, a new report from the information released on Tuesday suggests that Facebook will transition to supporting both existing government-backed currencies like the U.S. dollar or the euro and the Libre token when it is eventually launched. But according to the information, Facebook is just going to delay a separate digital wallet altogether, and they're reducing the scope of this entire project. Dialing it back, just like the Telegram folks had to. So it's going to be filthy fiat currencies instead of proper blockchain, eh? That seems to be the route they're going, and the implication is they got spooked by the regulators, and they don't want to upset the regulators. Well, it's not necessarily just Facebook that got spooked. It's all of the other payment processes like Visa that pulled out when the regulators started sniffing around. Yeah, that definitely was when things had to take a bad turn for them. I bet this has been in the works since that moment. Yeah, so now there's just more delay while they try and retool it, but it's not looking like it's going to end up being what they originally wanted it to be. It's finally happened, Joe. I can finally run Android on iPhone hardware, as long as I'm willing to rock an iPhone 7 or an equivalent iPod touch device. Yeah, now it was possible to run Android on the very first iPhone, but it's been a while since you could do this. And now Project Sandcastle has come along which allows you to at least temporarily boot Android 10 on the iPhone 7, which is pretty cool, I think. This has always kind of been my dream. I love this idea. Android on iPhone hardware. Mm, perfect. Except for with Project Sandcastle, the way this is being done, the jailbreak that's being used to achieve this is only persistent during the iPhone's boot time. It modifies the bootloader at boot, which means if you reboot the iPhone, it goes away. 
Now, that could be good because you could just get right back to using your phone. That's probably not a bad idea uh, because it's not fully functional under this jailbreak. Certain things don't work like the LTE, the Bluetooth, the GPU, you know, kind of like a Librem 5. It's not fully functional, so you'd probably want to boot into a functional OS from time to time. But the idea is pretty great, and they'll get that stuff eventually if they stick with it. This is a really cool example of just hacking for the sake of it, just for the fun of it. Although it is something of an advert, really, for a virtualization platform called Corellium, which is run by Chris Wade and David Wang, the two guys who have done this. But I think fair play to them, even though they're just trying to get their platform out there and more publicity. I think being able to run Android on an iPhone, even if it's a few years old, that is still really cool. It is a really cool technical feat. There'll be a link in the show notes that explains the tweaks they made to the Android subsystem and the Linux kernel to make this possible. And I'm really impressed. I don't I don't care if they're plugging Corellium. I think it's worth it. And I'd love to see this running on an actual physical iPhone. Well, one of the things that made it possible was CheckRain, which is how you root iPhones in the first place. And because CheckRain is now supported by Linux, you can actually use a rooted Android phone to jailbreak an iPhone without having a proper computer. That is just so cool to me. That is one of the great parts. That's also the part that's not persistent through a reboot. But it's so great because like an Android phone or tablet or a Linux box can now help you do this. And um, that everything about it is, it's exactly what you love. Remember the good old days where the joke would be, what's Linux running on now? You know, it's like it's like going back to that old joke. Like we got Linux running on the iPhone again. Yeah, from a Raspberry Pi Zero up to a supercomputer via even an iPhone now. <laughs> Linux is everywhere. And that's why we do a weekly news show about it. So be sure to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And I want to mention Fostalk Live. Go check it out at fostalk.com. Coming up soon. Well, soon-ish. Yeah, this is going to be on the 20th of June in London. It's a bunch of us podcasters all getting together. And there'll be some talks and maybe some workshops during the day, starting at lunchtime until uh, the pub kicks out. And tickets are now available. You can pay what you want, including nothing. So yeah, go to fostalk.com and find out more. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislast.com. And you can find me at joerest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. later.